Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Ephraim Siegel was one of the jurors selected on a case involving a double homicide that took place in the courtyard of the East River Houses, a NYCHA housing project in East Harlem. In his latest book, Mr. Siegel describes how the case came to consume him and how the final verdict turned out to be only the beginning for him in a search for why this cycle of poverty violence and incarceration persists. He joins us now to discuss the book, Juror Number Two, The Story of a Murder, The Agony of a Neighborhood. It's published by Writers, the Writers Press. Welcome to our show. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. You've published two novels, four works of nonfiction, dozens of short stories. When did you realize that this story might be something you'd want to write about? When I got onto the jury, uh, I, I thought this this has got to be interesting to be on a uh, on a jury on a murder trial, and I, I'm sure I'm going to write something about the trial. It was only uh, five or six days into the trial, after hearing both of the eyewitnesses to this crime, uh, after hearing about their background, their upbringing, and and some of the very unfortunate aspects of the lives they were living. That I that I thought this is a much bigger story than just the trial, and once the trial was over, I just decided I'm going to pursue this where, wherever it takes me. And that's how it came about. The East River Houses is a, a NYCHA housing project on First Avenue between 102nd and 105th Street. Uh, many of the buildings have river views. It it could have been nice. Uh, anyway, we'll get to that later. What happened on the early morning hours of June 72? 2005. 2007. Uh, five oh, 2007, were, sorry. Five young men were playing dice. Three of them were members of uh, the Bloods gang. Two were members of the Crips gang. And all of a sudden, at uh, a little past 4.30 in the morning, uh, a lone uh, man entered the courtyard with a semi-automatic pistol uh, he entered from the direction of 102nd Street. The dice game was closer to 105th Street in the courtyard, and he began firing. He was aiming at one of the Crips members, actually the, the leader of a Crips drug-selling crew, uh, because apparently the perpetrator was enraged that this Chris, Crips and, and his fellow Crips were in the courtyard of an area that should have been a Bloods area. He didn't know they'd been... Uh, basically, a truce worked out between the two, the two gangs, and uh, they were associating without violence. But uh, he didn't know he didn't know that, or it didn't matter to him. He was out to to shoot, wound, or kill this Crips leader, and uh, it, he he hit by accident a fellow blood, and then enraged by that, he came back to the dice game and shot and killed at point-blank range the other Crips. This was, a seven, this was an 18-year-old uh, African-American male uh, who happened to be a dwarf, three and a half mm. feet tall. Now, the case was called The People versus Abraham Kukuta, uh, and it was held in New York State Supreme Court on 100 Center Street. Um, but the trial was held on November 2017, over 10 years after the shooting. Isn't that unusual? I don't know if it's unusual. Uh, I, think, I think it's often the case that there are unsolved mur murders for the very reason that this 
this uh, case was so long in coming to court, and that is that there are witnesses or neighbors or people uh, in in the area who know what happened, who know the perpetrator of a crime, but are afraid to speak up. Uh, they fear for their own safety because there can be retribution against witnesses who testify. If they're gang members, which was the case with two eyewitnesses, they've taken an oath, and the code for gang members is uh, don't snitch. Snitches get stitches, which is the way one of the witnesses described the code. Uh, and so often, often these crimes go unsolved. Ten years is a long time, but there, there are cases that have taken longer than that to come to trial. Abraham Kakuta was a leader of a group called Puro, a blood-selling uh, crew, uh, Puro standing for pimps in red uniforms. That's an odd name. Well, the other crew, the other crew in East River Houses was was called Sex, Money, and Murder (SMM). So these are colorful names. But he was called Holiday. Why Holiday? I don't know where these nicknames come from, but everybody everybody in the trial had a nickname, and it was a bit confusing for the jurors. But we finally settled down, and you know we began calling them by their nicknames because that's how they referred to themselves, and that's how everybody else referred to them. Was he unaware that the the member of the Bloods that he killed was a a, a member of the Bloods, or uh, did he just shoot him accidentally? The way we sometimes uh, see happens, where bullets don't always go where they're intended to go. Well, uh, according to the testimony of, of uh, the eyewitnesses, Abraham Kakuta had been in that courtyard for a good part of the evening. Uh, he'd been observing the, the dice game. He knew all the players. Uh, he certainly knew uh, Manuel Sabater, the, the, the victim who was killed by his shots. So he didn't intend to kill him. Uh, but uh, he was spraying bullets, and, and one or more of the bullets hit uh, Manuel and, and, and killed him. You write, and I'm going to quote this. It's a little long. During the first five or six days of the trial, my view of the trial and what I was doing really changed. I heard the horrendous life experiences of the key witnesses, and I thought, I have to find out more about their background why kids in this environment grow up this way. It became a compulsion. I was on a mission to learn the why and how of this crime and the larger lesson of growing up in this community. Now, that was the, the writer and you taking over. Uh, that, well, I, I think anybody could have had that, that curiosity, but I am a writer, uh, I've been a journalist, uh, I've told all kinds of stories, both fictional and factual, and this was a story that just, to me, demanded to be told. New York State Supreme Court Judge Michael Obis presided over the case. What was your impression of the way he handled it? He's a, he was a veteran who was very close to retirement, wasn't he? He was close to retirement. In fact, he, he reached retirement age uh, shortly after the trial. Uh, and he applied for and got a, uh, a two-year temporary position. He, he's a wonderful judge. Uh, the, the, the jurors loved him. He was always in control of his court of his courtroom. Um, perfectly courteous, uh, especially courteous to the jurors, thanking us at every opportunity for our service. Uh, never rattled by anything that happened in the trial by by any of the shenanigans, especially of the 
of the defense lawyer. Uh, and uh, we, we just think he did a wonderful job. You mentioned the, the witnesses, Daniel, uh, Gabriel Washington, who was a blood, was one of the two witnesses to the shooting. Uh, didn't he face a 25 years to life for murder in the second degree in another case? He did. It was actually, the charge was actually felony murder, which is equivalent to murder in the second degree. It was uh, a, a case where he and, and uh, two other young men had conspired to rob somebody, a drug dealer. Actually, uh, the other two robbed the wrong person and wound up in an altercation, wound up shooting him. So Gabriel was not there, but because he had conspired uh, to commit this crime, he was charged with fel felony murder and was facing a, a very long sentence. So he uh, made a cooperation agreement as a witness, and that reduced his jail time to 18 years still, even though he hadn't been present during the murder. That's right. It seemed like it seems like quite a long sentence. Uh, usually the defense tries to make a big deal of the fact that these witnesses are getting a benefit and, and they can point to a big benefit. Um, but in this case, the benefit for, for Gabriel was uh, was modest. Uh, he, he's going to be in jail till his mid 50s. Did the, the cooperation agreement affect the way the jury viewed his testimony? It, it really didn't. Uh, I think the prosecution did, a, did an excellent job of presenting the case. It was the prosecution's decision to take these two witnesses through every aspect, every, every important aspect of their childhood, teenage years, early 20s. And I think the point was to, to diffuse what would be uh, the defense cross-examination Rather than have the defense bring out all of their criminal history, the crimes they committed, the times they'd lied to the cops, the times they'd lied in, in a grand jury investigation, the prosecution laid all that out in the in direct testimony. So the, we, we, heard, we heard the stories, and, and in particular, we heard in detail the events of June 6th and June 7th, 2007, uh, we understood that these two witnesses knew the defendant very well. One of the, the, the other witness, uh, Alejandro Alvarez, was actually the right-hand man to Abraham Kakuda. Uh, their, their testimony was, uh, was very, very believable. And their stories bring to light the harsh realities that these young men face and what leads them to make one bad decision after another. Uh, what happened with Gabriel Washington? What was his story? He grew up in uh, Wilson Houses, which is on the north side of 105th Street. Uh, he, had one, he had one grandmother living in, uh, in East River Houses. He had another grandmother living in Wilson Houses. Both of so it was the Nitra family. Uh, yes. Uh, both of his parents died at age 12, oh. uh, within, within a few months of each other. So he was an orphan, still living with sometimes back and forth between the two grandmothers. Uh, but by, by age 11 and 12, he was out on the street. He was cutting school every day, uh, and he got into selling drugs because one of his 
childhood buddy who said, hey, come along with me. We're selling drugs. We'll make some money. And one thing led to another. And, and, the, and what they led to was making a lot of money at some point, uh, getting arrested, uh, spending time in, first in juvenile detention, then in jail, getting out, going back to selling drugs, getting rearrested. Uh, it, it was like a train that was destined for a train wreck, and, and there was no way to get off. Would you say that the story of the other witness, Alejandro Alvarez, was even more distressing? It, it, it was more distressing. Uh, his mother was a, was a crack addict, and he related how his mother would take him and a younger sibling into the crack houses while she was getting high. And Alejandro, five or six years old, would get a, a, a water pistol and his mom would say, here, shoot this out the window, you know, have a good time while mm. she was getting, while she was, she was doing drugs. Uh, at some point, his father sent his mother away. He thought she was a bad influence. But the father worked in after-hours clubs and sometimes would disappear for the entire weekend. Uh, and he would put Alejandro, then age six, in charge of two younger siblings. Right. He would give him the food stamps and say, well, if, you know, if the food runs out, you go, to the, you go to the bodega and buy more food. So a six-year-old is in charge of, of two younger siblings, sometimes for 48, 72 hours. Uh, in That's addition, six. <laughs> yeah. In addition, uh, Alejandro was um, overweight. Uh, he wasn't athletic. He was bullied by the other kids. Uh, he didn't fight back. It, it was a miserable, miserable childhood. And, and by, by the elementary grades already, he was running away from home. And you write, the neighborhood, the decrepit NYCHA project of East River houses, the streets, the revolving door of the criminal justice system, the failing schools, perhaps most of all the family or lack thereof, are these the villains? Do we blame forces beyond the control of a six-year-old, then a 10-year-old, now a 17-year-old? Or do we say, no, he had choices, you always have choices? What conclusions have you come to? I think, I think it's, it's really hard to separate one, one factor from another. I put a lot of emphasis on, on family. Uh, I think broken families, particularly uh, being being an orphan at age twelve, or having the kind of dysfunctional family that Alejandro had, has a huge effect. I mean, we're talking about young children. We're talking about six, seven, nine-year-olds uh, without any stability in their lives, without 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 the kind of parental supervision that might take a child who was getting into trouble and and, and straighten that child out. Uh, but all the other influences also come into play, the decrepit housing, uh, the, the, the gang violence, and, the, and the, sometimes the need to join the gang for self-protection. Uh, and, the, and then what I call the failing schools. Now, uh, I, know, I know educators say, with, with some justification, the schools are not social service agencies. They're not responsible for what goes on in families. But, but the fact is... By the time uh, a young person finishes eighth grade, he or she has spent nine years in school 
and that's probably 9,000 hours of contact with, it, with, with the public agency that, that has the most direct effect on young people growing up. There's no and, other, you say, there's no, and you say many of them at that point still can't read or do math. Well, I'm not saying they can't read, but, but the, what the state tests show is, is, is that they're not reaching proficiency levels, either in reading or math. Uh, and this is true for most of the schools in District 4, which covers all of East Harlem. My guest is Ephraim Siegel, S-I-G-E-L. His latest book, Juror Number 2, The Story of a Murder, The Agony of a Neighborhood. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm Leonard Lopate, and this is the Leonard Lopate, Leonard Lopate at Large. Uh, there was a shift in Alejandro's life when he turned 18. He was awarded $17,000 as a result of a, of a biking injury. You would have thought that would have turned his life around. He, he seemed to be on track to turn his life around by joining the Army. That was given to him as an alternative to jail for for one of his for, for one of his crimes, uh, and instead of instead of following through on that, he was in an exercise program to get to be physically fit for the army. Uh, he actually had held a few real jobs. He came into this money, and everything else went away. He spent the money on clothes. He wanted to look good. Uh, that made him more acceptable socially. This is not. This is not obviously the decision of a person who can see his life as a whole. As a whole, this is a decision of somebody who's had a miserable childhood and thinks, "Well, let's get the, <laughs> let's use this money to have some fun and to improve my relations with those around me." And he began smoking crack, which he said was the worst decision I ever could have made. Yes, he said every everybody disowned him for for several years. Uh, his fellow gang members, and and uh, at that point he would do anything he could uh, for money. Uh, he would take he would steal money from a woman that he was supposed to marry. Uh, he he held jobs, delivery jobs, and he would pocket the money instead of bring the money back to his to the restaurant that was employing him. Uh, it, it was it was absolutely a low point in a life that had had already many low points. What was the makeup of the jury? What was the makeup of the jury? Yeah. Um, was this a, a wide range of, of uh, typical New Yorkers? Well, it, it was a range of New Yorkers. It was five women and seven men, uh, different ages, although I would say I would say middle age and, and senior citizens predominated in the jury. Uh, there were a, a, because they, they tend to predominate in juries in general. They're the ones who are less likely to have to worry about uh, taking too much time off from work. in, in many they're, cases, they're they're the ones who have the time to do it. Uh, that's right. Uh, and I I would say it was on the whole a pretty well educated jury with people who who had held or were holding professional jobs. Was there any doubt, the jury, that Holiday would be found guilty? I would say there was almost no doubt. We took the we took the judge's instructions to heart. We did not discuss the case among ourselves during the trial itself. 
I know there were raised eyebrows at, at some of the testimony, at some of the things we heard, at some of the things we saw, but, but never was there a word about, well, what do you think? Are we going to convict this guy? Um, when we got into deliberation, we immediately took a vote on the question of murder in the first degree for each of the two defendants, and there was only, there was only one juror in, in the case of uh, uh, Joshua Agard, the one who was executed at point-blank range. There was only one juror who wasn't ready to say guilty, and when she listened to the arguments of the other juries, she, she was convinced. So there was quite a bit of unanimity. Now, the East River houses were intended to, to serve as desirable affordable housing when they were uh, first opened in 1941. How long before the project became a hotbed of drug dealing and gangs and, and criminal activity in general? I don't, I don't really know the answer to that, but um, I did read a, a very good article by Richard Price, novelist and writer, who grew up in, in NYCHA housing in the Bronx. And he wrote about the changes in public housing over the decades in New York and how in the 70s and 80s the, the epidemic of um, crack addiction combined with the fact that the demographics of, of residents of public housing had changed so much that most of the families were on welfare. That wasn't that wasn't the case in in the in the 40s, the 50s, even in the 60s. The the demographics of, of public housing were much more mixed. Uh, but but it changed. And and what I what we saw in the trial was that there are now generations of families that have that have lived there. These apartments get passed on from generation to generation. And that, frankly, is, is uh, I think that's a big problem for society. There was a, a time some years ago when I actually lived in the next apartment to the woman who was running NYCHA at that moment. She wound up leaving. Um, she was a very nice person, but she had to contend with all the accusations of that the, uh, the, the houses often had no heat or hot water. There was lead paint, mold, pest infestation malfunctioning elevators, dirty hallways, crumbling facades, burnt out lights. Have I left anything out? <laughs> I don't think you've left anything out. Um, I, I spent time at the uh, police precincts, Precinct 23 and also uh, PSA 5, which, which supervises the, the NYCHA projects in, in East Harlem. Uh, Every, every precinct holds a monthly community council meeting at which anybody can show up, ask a question, voice a complaint. Most of the complaints had nothing to do with the cops. Most of the complaints had to do with conditions in NYCHA housing. Uh, and, and you would have the, the commander of PSA 5 saying, taking notes and saying, oh, you know, I'll do what I can. It's not, it's not our job. We don't, we don't run those houses, but I'll, bring it, I'll try to bring it to the attention of someone who might fix it. You research whether the NYPD could be doing more in policing the housing projects, and you're right. I came away impressed by the responsiveness of the NYPD. That's not something we've been hearing a lot these days. No, uh, we haven't. I'm very, I'm very concerned about the upsurge in violence in the city this year. Uh, 
a lot of that violence is centered in and around the housing projects. It's centered in neighborhoods like East Harlem, East New York, Brownsville, Crown Heights and Brooklyn, the South Bronx. These are poor areas. There's been a 38% increase in murders this year so far compared to the first 10 months of 2019. Uh, the number of shootings has doubled. Uh, there is there is a lot of crime, and frankly, both the police and the and the, and the communities have a responsibility to cooperate to to end this uh, to end this wave of violence. Uh, I think the police have done a lot over the past two decades to reduce crime, but but one of the residues of that has been. Uh, a lot of distrust and dislike of the police in in poor neighborhoods. The police have tried to reach out through neighborhood coordinating officers, uh, but but the police have to do more. And I think the I think communities have to step up and realize that that without cooperating, without helping the police solve crimes, uh, this, the crime wave will not be stopped. So. Uh, I don't think the I don't think the answer to to either crime or the the very unfortunate shootings of unarmed people I don't think the answer is less policing. I think the answer is better policing and better community relations. And that takes both both the police and community leaders to get together. Hmm. When people were talking about defunding the police, actually, they were talking about uh, sending people who didn't have guns to handle certain uh, situations. Would that have applied here in this case? Uh, well, once once the bullets were, were flying and 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 two young men were down, uh, hmm. no, that that would be too late for the social workers. That would be too late for the mental health workers. Certainly, certainly, there are cases where uh, social workers could help. But you know, when when the, when when nine one one gets a call at eleven thirty at night because of a domestic dispute or because someone uh, hears bullets being fired or or an altercation that's going to lead to violence, uh, I think it's it's very hard to say that it should not be the cops who respond to that call. Renovations at the NYCHA houses are desperately needed. And a method called RAD, Rental Assistance Development, is being considered. How would RAD work? I, I think the idea is that uh, the, the NYCHA houses are sitting actually on some very valuable real estate in New York City, in, in, in all of the boroughs, certainly very evident in, in East Harlem, where there are something like 20-plus projects. It's an area that is gentrifying, like, like much of the city. Uh, there are developers who might build on the land that's not currently occupied by buildings. They might build they might build new housing and actually tear down some of the existing housing, which which might cost more to renovate and rehabilitate than it would to build something new. Uh, and and the idea would be to have more more mixed housing. Uh, so <clears throat> Some, some at market rate and some very subsidized uh, so that you would change you would change the character of those neighborhoods 
but you would preserve the opportunity for subsidized, low-cost housing for people who have, who have no other choice. Uh, this, this, is, this is a concept, and whether, whether it can work in practice is, is you know, that, that, that's for discussion. Uh, obviously, the p- people in NYCHA houses are very upset by the idea of this. Um, it, it's, it's going to be a long process to get this or some other fix to NYCHA housing actually put into effect. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Before I get back to my conversation with Ephraim Siegel, I would like to take a moment to ask my listeners to consider becoming members of WBAI. We're, we're asking all of our listeners to step up right now and go online to give to WBAI.org or to call 516-620-3602 to help keep this show and this station on the air in the wake of this terrible pandemic. Again, the number is 516 620 3602, or you can go online to give to WBAI.org. And one great way to support WBAI throughout the year while spreading out your financial commitment so that it's only a small amount taken out of your credit card or your bank account each month is to become a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy. And I am delighted to announce that anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now will receive a free copy of the book that we've been discussing on today's show, Juror Number 2, The Story of a Murder, the Agony of a Neighborhood, by my guest, Ephraim Siegel. But whatever level you're able to show your support for this show and the station that brings it to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., it all helps. The important thing is that you take that step and keep the show coming to you and all of your fellow listeners by calling 516-620-3602 or by going to give to WBAI.org online. And please help support the only station in New York City on the New York City radio dial that's 100% listener sponsored. We don't take grants. We don't take corporate sponsorship. No, we don't take commercials of any kind. Uh, but don't forget to make that tax-deductible contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And from all of us at this station, thank you. And I'm happy to return to my guest, Ephraim Siegel, whose latest book is Juror Number 2, The Story of a Murder, the Agony of a Neighborhood. Uh, and uh, I, I wonder if this is uh, a unique uh, project for you because your other works were, well, you've written nonfiction and you've also written fiction. But have you written anything of the, uh, along these lines? Nothing along these lines. Uh, I've written some family memoirs. I've written some, some very personal essays about my experience uh, uh, working in Israel, uh, my experience dealing with, with the aftermath of my mother's death and, and what kind of activities that led me into, what, what kind of changes in my life came about as a result of that. But no, nothing like this. This was really uh, a project.
project of investigative journalism, and it, it's put me very much in touch with the problems of education, violence, and, and opportunities or lack of opportunities for young people. And I intend to, to keep uh, researching and writing about this. I've done some newspaper op-eds. I'm working on some pieces now about, about the problems of violence and, and ways of mitigating and hopefully ending uh, the wave of violence that we're living through. Uh, I'm still writing fiction, uh, but the the issues that I that I came to address in the book have really stayed with me very much, and they're issues that I intend to to keep working on and writing about. So let's look at some of those issues, uh, beginning with education. Alvarez and Washington, the, the, the two witnesses, both attended PS 146 on 106th Street between First Avenue and FDR Drive, which is right near the uh, housing project. Can schools make up for neglectful families and the strong pull of gangs and, and drug dealing in these communities? I, I would say, I guess, for mostly young men. Can they have a hundred percent success? No. Can well, they aim to? Can they aim to have a hundred percent success? Yes, I think they have to. I found I found schools that work in in East Harlem. Uh, I profile in detail Demetrius Pantelides, who's the principal of PSIS one seventy one uh, on one hundred third Street and Madison Avenue. Uh, his school is right across the street from uh, from the housing project. Uh, you looked at the Success, it, Success Academy Harlem Three, and also Central Park East High School, and, right. and they were all having some success. How are they doing it? I think I think I think there are a couple of things that are really important. One one is a principal with an absolute commitment to hundred percent success. Uh, you have to believe that you can reach every child. You have to be able to assemble a staff of teachers who want to be there and to agree with and sign on to the agenda of the principal. And it takes, it takes really tremendous determination to navigate the DOE bureaucracy and the union rules and to assemble a staff of teachers that see eye to eye with the principal. Uh, um, Bennett Lieberman, the principal at Central Park East High School, uh, it, it, it took him more than five years to turn around a school that had a graduation rate in the 30s uh, mm. to, to begin to have success. Now his graduation rate graduation rate is is 100 uh, percent, and he jokes that he was uh, been the principal of three different schools: a failing school, a mediocre school, and now uh, <clears throat> one one of the most successful high schools in the city. Uh, and it's a school that that is 85, 90 percent composed of uh, young men and women from whose background is Latino or African-American. It took him, it took him several years to assemble the staff he wanted. There were teachers in the school when he inherited it that he knew were not doing a good job. They were not in in control of their class. Uh, There was chaos in their classrooms, but he had to go through an extensive period of, of, uh, Seeking to seeking to remove those teachers if they wouldn't voluntarily leave, and ultimately to to proceed with um, uh, an arbitration, uh, which is required by union contract. 
there aren't that many principals who will go through that kind of effort. Uh, but we need principals like that. And there are people out there in New York and elsewhere in the country that, that can do that job. And, and one of my suggestions is let's, let's do a search for, for those kinds of principals rather than, rather than the search we always do every three or four mm-hmm. years for the chancellor, as if picking this miracle worker who's, who's, who's done a good job somewhere else in Houston or San Francisco or whatever, and is going to come in and reform the New York City schools. The New York City schools are going to be reformed school by school, classroom by classroom, by finding the people who know how to navigate the bureaucracy, by modifying the bureaucracy, by hopefully loosening some of these uh, union rules, uh, and making it possible for, for, for success to happen in the schools. It won't what are the union in- rules that are holding things back? Well, you know, the, the union contract is, is over 200 pages, and it goes into great detail about uh, what, what, can be, what can be required and, and, and not required. Uh, you know, when, when, the, when the schools shut down in the spring and the DOE attempted to mount uh, remote learning on the fly, of course, because there was, there was no background in this, what did the, what did the union do? What did Michael uh, Mulgrew, the the head of the UFT do, he told, he told his union members that they were not required to teach remotely. They weren't trained for it, and it wasn't in their contract. So this is, this is, this is the kind of union response that, frankly, uh, I, don't, I don't think is acceptable. Well, how many and of these kids can't even study remotely? Uh, do, do, uh, considering the, the poverty uh, situation. How many of them would even have computers in their homes? A lot of them lack computers. The DOE set out to deliver um, uh, tablets to them. Uh, the DOE didn't check that there was internet service in all these places. Listen, uh, the, the the DOE has to get the basics right. Right? You have to if, to to mount uh, face-to-face learning in today's environment. The schools have to be cleaned and maintained properly. They have to be ventilated properly. Uh, for, the, for that part of the population or those days where children are learning remotely, they have to have the right equipment. They have to right, have the right uh, Internet service. Maybe they have to have alternate locations where they can study from. These are, these are all huge logistical problems but they can be they can be solved. Uh, they can be solved with the with the with the right organization, um, and I, I don't I don't see that right now. Why aren't rehabilitation and treatment programs like the ones that Alejandro Alvarez continued to escape more effective? And and what about the shelters? How, how can they be made safer? I can't tackle all of these social problems. Anytime. But you do address them in your book. Uh, I do. I do talk about it. it it's easy to. It, it's it's easy for me and other people to identify problems. We can't always come up with solutions. Um, the 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 issue of rehabilitation uh, for young men who've been released from jail or who are diverted from jail to an alternate program, that I think is is something that can be addressed by the types of nonprofits that I profile in the book. Uh, there are 21 or 22 sites around the city using what's called a cure violence 
model uh, that involves assembling a, a staff of <clears throat> outreach workers and violence interrupters whose job is to be out in the community, and that is often to be out in the NYCHA houses, uh, talking to, to young men, trying to dissuade them from doing violent things, trying to offer them alternatives to gangs and crime, uh, jobs, paid internships, educational opportunities. These are the kinds of, this is the kind of work that's really, really requires one-on-one -on -one contact. It's, it's, it's not the kind of work that a city bureaucracy is good at. We have, to, we have to support those organizations that are doing it successfully. We have to find other organizations that can do it. One of the keys is, is finding ex-offenders who are known in, in the nonprofit parlance as credible messengers who can mm -hmm. talk face-to-face -face with, with 16, 18-year-olds and, and say, look, I've been there. I've done that. I, I lived the life that, you, that you're tempted to lead or that you're leading, and what was the result? The result was jail and more jail and, and, and maybe having uh, children that, that I don't see on a regular basis, children whose birthdays I miss. Uh, that, that's, that's the kind of intervention that's required. The same kind of intervention is required when we release these young people from jail uh, to make sure that they don't just go back to the environment and the way of life that they were in that got, that got them into trouble. Because one gets the sense from your book that many of the young men in these poor communities don't see any alternatives to criminal behavior. I, I think it's a, it, it, it is a minority of young people in these neighborhoods that wind up in jail. But if that minority is 20 or 25 percent, that's thousands of ruined lives around the city. Yes. It may be tens of thousands of ruined lives. So uh, where, there's a strong, where there's strong parental supervision, even if that's a single mom, uh, where there are uncles or other male relatives who can exercise some supervision, uh, it is possible to have, to have models. Uh, but we have, to, we have to work at it. We have to work harder at it because we're losing too, we're losing too many people. Vanessa Cruz, the, the niece of Manuel Saboteur, made a statement during the trial on behalf of her uncle, or her late uncle. She's a 32-year-old woman with a master's degree in special education and a, an example of someone who was able to, to break the cycle. So how can we help more people to be able to do that? Or again, uh, is it because she's a woman that things were a little different for her? Most, most, of, the, most of the problems, you know, the, 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 the large percentage of the young people who get, who get into trouble <clears throat> are males. Uh, I, I think she, 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 I don't know where she found the resources. I spent, uh, spent a lot of time with, with uh, uh, Vanessa Cruz, that, that's the name of the woman who's the niece of the, one of mm -hmm. the victims. Um, she actually grew up, she grew up on the Lower East Side in, in NYCHA housing, but spent a lot of time in, uh, a lot of time in, in uh, East River and houses in, in Wilson houses because her grandmother lived there. Um, she, she, she 
she wanted to she wanted to work with young people, and I think that's great. I I, I think what we I, I think having success stories and and people who come back to these neighborhoods and work and work with and work with young people is really is really important. And one of them is Omar Jackson. You wrote a piece for the New York Daily News last year about criminal justice reform. And Omar Jackson is at the center of this. He is a 45-year-old man, the program manager at Stand Against Violence East Harlem Save. Uh, that's one of 22 cure violence programs around the city. Uh, how, how do they work? Well, th- these are the organizations that that are staffed with outreach workers who are called violence interrupters, and most of them, like Omar Jackson, have a criminal background. They've been in jail. They've done the time. Uh, they know what the temptations are. And and Omar was very frank. He's very frank about his background. He said to me, look, um, I was infatuated by this lifestyle, the lifestyle of being my own boss, head of a drug-selling crew, making my own hours, getting up when I wanted, leaving town when I wanted, having enough money to buy fancy cars and to entertain women. Uh, he said, I didn't, I didn't realize that it was an addiction. It was an addiction not to a substance, but to a way of life. And only after being incarcerated and getting out and looking back on his experience, one of the things that was, that was most moving for him was... <laughs> realizing that he he missed his son's first birthday because he was in jail. Hmm. Uh, and he and his staff of three are in touch with some 30 young people at risk of engaging in violence, primarily in Johnson and Jefferson houses. But uh, that's, uh, that's just 30 young people. There are probably hundreds, aren't there? There, are, there, there may be thousands. Uh, hmm. There, the save save is operating now in three NYCHA housing projects out of about twenty. They're they're operating in a small, relatively small area of East Harlem. Uh, he's ready to take on more. He says he says, "Give me more people, give me more resources. Uh, I can I can really do a much bigger job in East Harlem." And I think I think uh, people running these programs in other areas. Uh, Erica Ford in South Jamaica with a program called Life Camp. Uh, the people in the South Bronx uh, from Bronx Connect. Uh, they're doing this kind of work. Because it's one-on-one, the area in which they work is small, right? We have to, we have to expand those programs. But that's not going to – again, that's not going to happen overnight. There's no instant solution to these. We have to, we have to commit to long-term efforts – to reduce violence, to give young people alternatives, and especially to turn around failing schools and, and show them that education can lead to careers, can, can lead to alternatives to the wrong, the wrong behavior, and it can lead to happier lives and to, and to social cohesion instead of social disruption. Ephraim Siegel is my guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. His latest book, Juror Number Two, The Story of a Murder, The Agony of a Neighborhood, published 
by the writer's press. Well, there are a number of cure violence programs. You mentioned another one, uh, Goso Getting Out of Staying Out and Staying Out, a nonprofit that was founded by Mark Goldsmith. Uh, and that works with prisoners at Rikers. Now, the New York City jail population has been declining steadily from 11,700 in 2013 to just under 7,200 in September 2019. But this year, we've seen an upsurge in violence. Uh, is that uh, because of the pandemic, do you think? Uh, uh, clearly, the pandemic plays a role. Uh, I think the jail population may be under 3,000 at this point. Uh, wow. Many, many, many prisoners were released uh, in, in the spring uh, be, be, because obviously the pandemic was, was reaching into uh, the jails and detention facilities. Uh, and for, so for, for the safety of these prisoners, many of them were released. Um, and, and there is quite a bit of disagreement as to whether that, that release of what may be, what, what may be thousands of, of young people is, is in fact part of the reason that we've seen this upsurge in shootings. We, we really don't have, we don't have the data for that. What, what, what I've learned from my investigations is that just releasing these young men from jail without follow-up, without supervision, has the potential uh, to create more violence. And, and that's what we don't want. There has, to be a, there has to be a balance of releasing people from jail who don't need to be in jail uh, to keeping streets and neighborhoods safe. Uh, and critics and of, of the, the, uh, the new policy uh, have pointed out that uh, many of the people who were let out of jail wind up committing crimes. Uh, we saw a whole bunch of commercials during the last election cycle from people who, who were pointing that out. Yeah, well, we, uh, unfortunately, we don't have very good data on it because most of the shootings are unsolved. Many of the murders are unsolved. And so we're not we're really not able to say whether uh, such and such a person uh, actually committed subsequent acts of violence after being released. Uh, common sense would tell us that certainly that's certainly a possibility. All, all I'm saying is let's have the programs in place so that when we release when we release young people, there is supervision, there is support, there is opportunity. You can't you can't you can't force a young man to say, uh, okay, I'm leaving uh, I'm leaving such and such a crew that's been involved in the wrong behavior, and I'm going into an internship. That, he, he, he has to make that decision for himself. And as, as Omar Jackson says, you can't tell these guys anything, right? They have, to, they have to see from your own background, from backgrounds like Omar's, that, that the workers trying to help them know what they're talking about, that they've been through this, and that they know that there are alternatives, and that it's much better to embrace those alternatives at age 16 before you've spent four or five years in jail. We're pretty much out of time, but uh, I wonder if part of the problem uh, for organizations seeking to help in underserved communities is a matter of getting the resources to the people who need them most. Is it just a matter of reaching them? I, I think it's a, it's, it's a, it's, it's a matter of, of knowing that it takes often one-on-one -on -one -on -one contact. And, and that to announce to announce a program from the mayor's office and and say okay we're we're providing another 10 20 50 million dollars 
for this without without the infrastructure in place. My feeling is that we need we need local leaders in communities like East Harlem who are, who are running successful organizations to be the to be the models to to extend their work and and to reach five times as many, ten times as many young people. And we have to do the same thing in the schools. We have to take we have to take the examples of, of successful schools and replicate them and bet on success. Let's let's bet on what works instead of just throwing money from on high, announcing grandiose programs without having without having the resources in place and the right people in place to implement them. Do you think that the lessons you learned from this case can be applied to other at-risk communities around the country? And and you have to keep it in under a minute, the answer. <laughs> Cure Violence is actually a nationwide program, started in Chicago, so it, it, is, it is operating elsewhere. Um, uh, yes, it's possible, but, but let, let's recognize two things. One, these are urgent problems and we have to start now, and two, they, they're going to take time. And I thank you so much for being on our show. It's uh, I, I love reading this book. Ephraim Siegel, S-I-G-E-L, his latest book, Juror Number Two, The Story of a Murder, The Agony of a Neighborhood. It is published by the Writer's Press. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to segment producer Kate Guan Allison for preparing today's interviews. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes or anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to comment on any of our programs or just want to say hello, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. As I mentioned earlier, WBAI finds itself in a very difficult position because of the pandemic. So if you value the kind of informative full hour deep dives on one subject that we bring you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., I hope that you'll go online right now to give to wbai.org or call 516-620-3602 to help keep community radio alive in the New York metropolitan area. And one great way to support WBAI without having to lay out a lot of money at one time is to become a BAI buddy. They are listeners who contribute $10 or more each month to keep the station running and to show their support for what we do on this show. And as I mentioned at the half, anyone who becomes a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large during today's show will receive a free copy of the book we've been discussing, Juror Number 2, The Story of a Murder, The Agony of a Neighborhood by my guest Ephraim Siegel. But whatever level you're comfortable donating at, the important thing is that you step up right now to show your support to keep this experiment in 100% listener-sponsored radio going. And please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. Big thanks to everyone who's already stepped up to support the show and the station because we rely 100% on the generosity of listeners like you. Again, the number 516-620-3602 or go to give2wbai.org. And we hope that you'll tune in again tomorrow when Ellis Coase, one of our regular contributors on the show, will discuss his recent op-ed for USA Today, Despite Biden Win, Senate and Electoral College Need Reform. We'll see you then.